Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the April podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Massimo supports your surge capacity management efforts, offering solutions that are designed to enhance both patient and clinician safety. Monitor COVID-19 and other patients with Massimo Safety Net. Combining tetherless pulse oximetry, powered by clinically proven Massimo SET, with a secure patient surveillance platform, Massimo Safety Net seamlessly extends care beyond the boundaries of the hospital into the home. Trust Massimo Safety Net, the only solution to deliver tetherless, hospital-proven Massimo SET pulse oximetry and surveillance monitoring to alternative care spaces. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hi, and welcome to the April 2021 podcast. I'm Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a retrospective review of ventilator alarms in the pediatric intensive care unit. High and medium priority alarms from two ventilators used in different ICUs were evaluated over six months. Lange et al. identified 11 distinct ventilator alarms with high priority alarms more common with one ventilator and medium priority alarms more common with the other. On average, 22.5 alarms occurred per ventilator per day. Scott provides commentary on the importance of alarm settings, concerns about alarm fatigue, and the need for research aimed at alarm management that maximizes patient safety. This is a perfect example where artificial intelligence could be very useful in improving patient safety as well as caregiver satisfaction. Erner and coworkers performed a secondary analysis of subjects undergoing diaphragmatic ultrasound and applied machine learning techniques to clinical data to stratify subject risk of diaphragmatic atrophy. Data from 191 subjects representing 761 study days failed to yield a variable predictive of diaphragmatic atrophy. However, a single measurement of diaphragmatic thickening within 48 hours of initiating ventilation was in fact a good predictor of risk. Hilti and Sasha opine that big data and machine learning are only as good as the information entered to remind us to mine the gap between physiology and big data. Mine the gap, of course, being a a common refrain in subways in London um, to remind you to look down the gap between the train and the platform. Deonti and others compared the measurement of dead space to tidal volume ratio to estimated dead space to tidal volume ratio in subjects with ARDS. They also evaluated the measures in predicting driving pressure changes during extracorporeal CO2 removal. The agreement between measured and estimated VDDT was low, with more than half of the error secondary to differences in the measurement of CO2 production. Predicted reductions of driving pressure with ECOR were similar, but only measured VDDT predicted mortality. The authors conclude these cannot be used interchangeably in clinical practice. Rich Calais, who's done a, quite a bit of research in ARDS and VDVT, opines that the role of dead space to total volume ratio in assessing the severity of ARDS and as a prognostic factor is evidence-based, but that researchers should be careful in these determinations when VDVT is estimated. Vera Papa et al. performed a retrospective cohort study of high-flow nasal cannula use to treat hypoxic respiratory failure in an effort to identify variables associated with high-flow nasal cannula success and failure. 
In a group of 74 subjects, 32 requiring intubation and 42 remaining on high flow nasal cannula, they identified net fluid balance in the first 24 hours as an important predictor of success. These differences in fluid balance were nearly 2.5 liters a day. They also note that the respiratory rate to oxygen index effectively predicted success. When you read this data and look at these fluid requirements, uh, I suspect these are patients who have sepsis and the increase in fluid requirements is another marker of severity of illness. McPeck and others conducted a bench study of continuous aerosol therapy during mechanical ventilation comparing a vibrating mesh nebulizer with a breast enhanced jet nebulizer. The vibrating mesh nebulizer was positioned on the dry side of the humidifier and the breath enhanced jet nebulizer on the wet side. They measured inhaled mass using radio labeled saline at six flows. Vibrating mesh nebulizers failed to completely nebulize the saline in 20% of the studies and deposited 15% of the dose in the water of the humidifier. They concluded that the breath enhanced jet nebulizers were more reliable than mesh nebulizers at a 10 to 12 milliliter per hour infusion rate. Krasinowitz and colleagues performed a single center retrospective chart review of mechanically ventilated pediatric subjects over 12 months to evaluate extubation readiness practices and barriers to extubation in individuals who pass a readiness screen. Of 427 subjects, 69% underwent a readiness screen prior to extubation. The most common reasons for delaying extubation were planned procedures, neurologic status, absence of leak around the endotracheal tube. They concluded that variations in extubation readiness practices could lead to significant delays in ventilator liberation. Peterson L. evaluated a respiratory therapist-driven high-flow nasal cannula protocol in the pediatric intensive care unit. High-flow nasal cannula was initiated and weaned according to a validated scoring tool. Adherence with the protocol was greater than 80% after four months and high-flow nasal cannula duration decreased by half a day while the PICU and hospital length of stay fell by half a day and one day respectively. They suggest that a respiratory therapist-driven high-flow nasal cannula protocol is safe as well as effective. Dugaladal evaluated implementation of a protocol for ARDS management using a pre-post study design. Post-protocol changes included a reduction in plateau pressure and tidal volume with a decrease in occurrence of number of patients receiving a tidal volume greater than 10 mLs per kilo by more than half. They found that the protocol result improved survival. This is a study from the Cleveland Clinic and follows up and confirms data from the Mayo Clinic and from Mass General that having a process in place for protocolizing ARDS care can improve outcomes. Panady and colleagues evaluated expiratory valve resistance and ICU ventilators in a bench model. They measured flow and pressure immediately prior to the exhalation valve to determine resistance. While some differences in resistance were identified, the clinical impact of these small changes remains unclear. Fusina and coworkers compared the association of corrected minute ventilation, dead space to tidal volume ratio, and ventilatory ratio on mortality in ARDS. Corrected minute ventilation is referenced to a normal PCO2 of 40 millimeters of mercury and has the advantage of being a simple determination compared to measurements of VDVT. They retrospectively studied 187 subjects with ARDS with COVID-19 and found that the corrected minute ventilation was independently associated with hospital mortality. This follows up on the uh, paper um, discussed by Calais and again suggests that VDVT is a good predictor of outcome. 
Hyatt Syed and others respectively reviewed data on total power during mechanical ventilation and evaluated the impact of obesity and the severity of hypoxemia on risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. The components of power were calculated for each group of subjects stratified by BMI and hypoxemia. They concluded that understanding the contribution of both lung and chest wall mechanics is essential for managing VLI risk. Kucher et al. evaluated implementation of an asthma protocol in the PICU using a before and after study design. The primary endpoint was a reduction in time on continuous albuterol. Following implementation of the protocol, adherence rate, by the way, was only 41%, and there were no changes in continuous albuterol duration or length of stay. But analysis of a subgroup of subjects who were adherent with the protocol, there was a reduction in albuterol use, length of stay in the PICU, and hospital length of stay. And this is important for, for research, not only that you're doing the, the study, but the study is run according to the design. Matlack et al. implemented a quality improvement protocol for weaning non-invasive respiratory support in neonates. The primary outcome was time to wean support. In a sample of 89 subjects, protocol implementation demonstrated expedited weaning of respiratory support and reductions in length of stay and in growth velocity. They concluded that in this population of 30 to 34 week gestation neonates, weaning could be facilitated but might impact growth velocity. And this is important in these small neonates where the increased oxygen demand, the increased work of breathing might actually reduce their weight gain and therefore alter their, their recovery. Arnold and others evaluated inhaled medications use in smokers with normal spirometry. In a retrospective analysis, they categorized gold zero subjects based on inhaled medication use from no medications up to dual bronchodilators with an inhaled corticosteroid. Use of inhaled medications was associated with an increased number and in severity of respiratory exacerbations and findings of obstructive spirometry at follow-up. These findings may predict which patients are likely to progress to obstructive lung disease. Durasse et al. compared chest expansion and lung function in healthy subjects and those with pulmonary disease, as well as the impact of age and BMI. Chest expansion was measured using a tape measure at two points on the thorax. The relationship of chest expansion to pulmonary function testing was poor, suggesting this measure provides little clinical utility. Chebert and co-workers performed a retrospective multicenter analysis of subjects with neuromuscular disease admitted to the intensive care unit for acute respiratory failure. Most of the 242 subjects had non-hereditary neuromuscular disease and 112 were intubated at admission. Of the 119 who received non-invasive ventilation, 65% avoided intubation and ICU mortality was 14%. NIV success and survival were reduced in neuromuscular disease associated with bulbar involvement. Guterres, Arias, and others provide a systematic review of electrical stimulation of the respiratory muscles in mechanically ventilated subjects. Including 12 randomized controlled trials, the authors suggest the current evidence is insufficient to recommend the use of electrical stimulation. Teno et al. provide a narrative review of telerehabilitation in subjects with respiratory disease. The authors highlight the impact of COVID-19 on the acceptance and success of telerehabilitation. In fact, if there is a silver lining to COVID-19, the increased use of telemedicine um, may be where we find um, something to be happy about. We appreciate you listening to the Restore Care podcast and look forward to speaking with you again. 
To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.